Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 13, The Birth of a Movement, Athanasius and the Orations Against the Arians. Last time, we delved deeply into one of the most treasured texts of Christian history in On the Incarnation. It bore all the hallmarks of a work written by a man feeling he had triumphed over his enemies and had plenty of spare time to explicate glorious Christian doctrine in all its fullness, even down to the details of why God chose to become a man rather than something cooler looking. This time, we are going to see how Athanasius writes when he has a bit more skin in the game. For he is no longer sitting comfortably in Alexandria. As we learned back in episode 11, he has been exiled and composes this work from Rome. Athanasius has begun to see that the enemies of Nicaea will not go gentle into that good night. So he composes a set of speeches, or orations, against the enemies that he believes masterminded his exile and threatened to impugn the dignity of the Son for all Christendom. There are four such orations in total, but the last one is written considerably later in his career, and since we're still in the early part of Athanasius' life, we're just going to focus on the first three. One of the most interesting things about the Orations Against the Arians is its title, for it uses a word often bandied about that we have yet to discuss much on this podcast. That word is Arian. A-R-I-A-N. You will often hear it used to describe those who hold similar views to Arius. Some even describe this whole period of history as the Arian crisis. But that is highly anachronistic. As we have seen, nobody up through the Council of Nicaea ever referred to themselves as Arian. Even Arius referred to him and his supporters as co-lucianists, not Arians. And the Eusebii and their friends certainly didn't treat Arius as their champion. Eusebius of Caesarea was mostly worried with vindicating his orthodoxy, not Arius's. And, more broadly, the attendees of Nicaea were all bishops, who were not keen to be seen as following some lowly exiled priest from Alexandria. So the word Arian only begins to emerge here, in the polemical writings of Athanasius. It is his handy moniker for basically all those with whom he disagrees. And when Athanasius of Alexandria disagrees with you, you know it. In fact, often the word Arian is not strong enough for his purposes. Throughout the orations, Athanasius will call his enemies Ariomaniacs, literally people who have gone mad in their admiration of Arius. Now, this polemical strategy has several rhetorical purposes. Athanasius doesn't spend much of the orations actually arguing against Arius, who he well knows is dead and buried. His main targets tend to be Eusebius of Nicomedia and Asterius, that scandalous layperson who had lapsed in the Great Persecution, whom we met all the way back in episode 6. 
Athanasius invokes the memory of Arius to immediately identify his opponents with one of their most extreme members, and one who had died as a condemned heretic. This is a great way of putting his opponents on the defensive, and of reminding his audience of just how strongly the church has condemned their viewpoint. In so doing, it also humiliates bishops who are now identified by a lowly priest with whom they are purported to agree. But most importantly, Ariomaniac is just a really fun word to say. It sounds like the name of a member of the pep club at Arius University, or an insult a middle schooler might come up with to tease their friend for a crush. I mean, can't you just see Athanasius on the playground saying, Ooh, you've got a crush on Arius? That's embarrassing. You're not an Arius liker, you're an Ariomaniac. Arius and Eusebius sitting in a tree. T-H-E-O-L-O-G-I-Z-I-N-G. But Athanasius doesn't just use this term for rhetorical purposes. He thinks there is a real theological significance in the term Arian. He thinks this is not just a label, but a movement. For the orations open by talking about how the heresy of Arius is just the worst. In fact, Athanasius calls it the last heresy, the worst of all, and the harbinger of the Antichrist. That kind of apocalyptic language is shocking to our ears, especially those of us living today who know that Arianism was not, in fact, the last heresy. There have been dozens, maybe even hundreds, to arise since. It's not clear to me whether Athanasius meant that Arius was supposed to precede the literal end of the world, or whether Arianism was a harbinger of the Antichrist because it quite literally denied Christ. It claimed that the Creator was but a mere creature. Whatever the case may be, Athanasius claims that you can know Arius founded a heresy by the mere fact that his followers take his name. For true Christians, Athanasius said, call themselves just that, Christians. But followers of heretics, whether they be Marcion or Basilides or Arius, take on the names of their teachers. They become Marcionites, or Basilideans, or Arians. In so doing, they stake their identity on a different teacher than Jesus, and hence depart from his faith. You might be thinking, that's pretty rich of Athanasius to say, since nobody was calling themselves Arians, Athanasius was just affixing that label to other people. And as far as we can tell, that's exactly true. But also keep in mind that at least 90% of the documents from antiquity are completely lost, so it's difficult to know these things for certain. The most sophisticated opponents of Homoousian language almost certainly didn't call themselves Arians, we know that. But for all we know, it's possible that the label may have begun to circulate in the years following Nicaea. It may be possible that some people referred to themselves that way. So Athanasius may have been capitalizing on an existing trend rather than inventing one. So much for Athanasius's rhetorical flourishes. What theological points does he make in these orations? 
As is usual in these sorts of documents, there are a whole bunch of arguments, many of them detailing point-by-point -point refutations of particular Aryan biblical interpretations. I'm not going to force you to listen to me go through all of them one by one. I'll try to summarize the common threads and draw out a few examples so you can get a flavor for Athanasius's logic and style. So to start off, Athanasius is really, really concerned to prove that the Word of God is eternal and was not created. This is a direct response to Arius's famous statement that there was a time when the Word was not, which is, in legend at least, supposed to have kicked off the whole Alexandrine controversy. So you can see why Athanasius would be really concerned to establish the truth of this. He has several arguments for doing so. The first one goes as such. If there was a time when the Son was not, like Arius claims, then that means there was a time when there was a Father, but no Son. Now the Son is called the wisdom and power of God in the Bible. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, for those of you keeping score at home. So, in that interval, when there was a Father, but no Son, was the Father without power or wisdom? If you answer yes, then, well, you are very silly, since every Christian of the time agrees that God is eternally powerful and wise. But if you answer no, if the Father is wise and powerful even without the Son, who is the wisdom and power of God, well, then that suggests that the Father has another power and wisdom other than the Son. So the Father has power number one, his own secret sauce power, and then power number two, the Son, and the same with wisdom. This seems like a very silly setup for God to have multiple aspects of the same property. It's basically a version of Occam's razor. Why posit a whole bunch of different wisdoms when one wisdom, the Son, will do perfectly well? And Athanasius might have called it that, but as Occam had the poor manners not to exist for another ten centuries or so, Athanasius didn't have that snappy label. As you may know, Occam's razor is that general principle that says it's usually a bad idea to suppose the existence of multiple entities when one will work just as well to explain whatever you're trying to explain. But beyond the logical issues with the Arian position, Athanasius's bigger problem is that such a picture is not biblical. The Bible calls Jesus the power and wisdom of God. Christians take the Bible to be inspired by God, so they should believe that the power and wisdom of God are coterminous with the second person of the Trinity. Since the Bible doesn't speak of any secret sauce, father-only power or wisdom or what have you, Christians shouldn't go around imagining them. End of story. And this opens up a vista into a key argument that runs throughout Athanasius's thought. Khaled Anatolios, probably the foremost living scholar on Athanasius, calls this his theology of the divine names. The basic idea is something like this. The Bible uses the same names and titles to describe the Father and the Son. If the Father and the Son are described in the same ways, that probably means they are basically the same, including in essence. To give a non-exhaustive list of the examples Athanasius piles up, the Father is described as a fountain of living water in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13, the Son is described as the life in John chapter 14 verse 6, 
and like a spring that never fails in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 11. The sun is called wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8, Psalm 104, and many other places besides, while the Father is referred to as a fountain of wisdom in Baruch chapter 3, verse 12. The reason for this overlap in names, Athanasius says, is because the Son is like the Father in every possible way, except for the simple fact that the Father begets and the Son is begotten. That's why the Bible names the two so similarly. It's because they just are that similar. In addition to the similarity of names, there is one particular idea that Athanasius hammers at over and over again in various places, that the Son alone knows the Father and that the Son is the perfect image of the Father. Those are two components of this idea that are both very important, so let's take them both in order. We'll start with the idea of the Son knowing the Father. Remember that for Athanasius, the incarnation of the Son saves humanity by bringing us into contact with God, and specifically with that grade A bona fide life-generating divinity of the Father. After all, if the problem is that we have been disconnected from the source of life itself, then we need to be reconnected with that same source of life, which is the Father. But of course, the Father doesn't become incarnate, that's the Son's job. So if the Son is going to connect us to the Father, then the Son has to know the Father. After all, Jesus can't share with us those aspects of God that he himself is not privy to. So the fact that the Son and Father share so many names is not just because biblical writers got sloppy. It is a reassurance to us that in Jesus Christ, we have encountered grade A, bona fide, salvific divinity, not whatever skim-milk divinity the Arians are attributing to the Son. But there are two sides to this coin. The Son must know the Father, but the Son must also be able to communicate the Father to us, express the Father to us, if salvation is going to happen. This is where Athanasius' idea of an image comes in. Now, as anyone who has ever taken a low-quality smartphone photo knows, images come in various degrees of quality. You might get a really grainy image with an ordinary smartphone. You might get a better one by taking a photo with a high-end camera. Or perhaps an even better one if you get the Google Pixel camera that I keep seeing advertised to me for no discernible reason. The Road to Nicaea is definitely not brought to you by Google Pixel. Alphabet already has enough of your personal data, friends. Share it with some other companies. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is that some images represent their subject better than others. Now, here is the Athanasian twist. The best image of something isn't a picture at all. It is the same sort of thing as whatever the subject is. Think of it this way. The best image is something that shares as many qualities as possible with its subject. Now, even the highest quality photograph of a person, denuded of all filters and capturing every single detail of that person's face, is still very different from the actual subject. For starters, photographs are 2D, persons are 3D. Photographs are made of pixels or ink and can't reason, will, or remember like people can. 
Photographs can obtain likes and reactions online, and no matter what social media wants you to think, just because someone likes or dislikes a photo of you doesn't mean they like or dislike you. So in that case, the best image of one person is actually another person who looks just like that subject. Athanasius puts it thus, We understand that the Son is begotten not from without, but from the Father. And while the Father remains whole, the expression of his subsistence is ever, and preserves the Father's likeness and unvarying image, so that he who sees him sees in him the subsistence too of which he is the expression. That's from the second oration, chapter 18, paragraph 33. All of that language of subsistence and expression may sound a little vague, so let me try another image for you. Those of you who have spent time in the American South may be familiar with the phrase, spitten image. When one person looks very much like another person, usually a family member, people will say they are the spitten image of that person. What you may not know is that the phrase has nothing to do with saliva. Spitten image is a contraction of spirit and image. In other words, when you say that someone is very much like another, you say that they are the spirit and image of that person. Living in 4th century Egypt as he did, Athanasius did not have access to all the charming witticisms of the American South. But I think this point is what he is trying to get at. We don't just need an image of God to be saved, we need a spitten image of God. And the spirit and image of God is that which is most like God in every way. Or, to put it more bluntly, if the spitten image of a human is another human, the spitten image of God is divine. A spitten image is a divine image. Anything less simply won't do. So that's Athanasius's theology of the image, and what Jesus has to be in order to be that image. But of course, it's not enough to lay out a bunch of logical points and call it a day. Athanasius must also prove his point from scripture. Now, the orations contain dozens of points of scriptural exegesis against the Arians. We are not going to talk about all of them, because that would take way too long, and I have a brunch to get to. So instead, I want to focus on the single most contested passage in the whole controversy, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22. Open your Bibles with me, and let's take a look. Unless you're listening to this podcast while driving, then please don't open your Bible. I'm, I'm just going to read it for you. To set the scene, Proverbs chapter 8 is a long speech from a semi-divine figure called Wisdom. You may remember from our episodes on Origen that everyone in this period reads the Bible as a whole and takes it for granted that passages may have meanings that aren't apparent on the surface, or even to the original audience. Because Jesus is called the power and wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians, Christians took it for granted that this speech in Proverbs was actually the Son talking about himself. Of course, its initial Jewish audience would never have bought this interpretation, but but Christians of all stripes, Athanasian or Arian, did agree on this. So then what does this mysterious figure of wisdom, aka the sun in allegorical disguise, actually say in this passage? 
Well, in verse 22, we read this. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of long ago. You can probably see why this text would have had Arius jumping up and down and pointing emphatically at it. First of all, Jesus appears to be saying that he was created, you know, like a creature. And since the Father isn't created by definition, then Jesus isn't of the same stuff as the Father. He must have had his substance from nothing, as that famed summary of Arius claims. Second of all, it says the Son is created as the first of God's acts of long ago, which sure makes it sound like the Son was created as part of the world at the beginning of time, but within time, not from eternity. There was, in other words, a time when the Son was not as Arius so famously said. For Athanasius, however, all of this Arian logic is hot garbage. He gives ten reasons why. Normal people would probably be content with one to three reasons, but Athanasius is in exile and has some spare time on his hands, so he decides to give us ten reasons. Here they are, in all their punishingly intricate glory. Reason number one. Arians need to stop waffling, because what they're going to say is that the Son is a creature, but not like other creatures. A, a work of the Father, sure, but not like any other works. For Athanasius, this is pure nonsense. The Son is not some insecure parent who needs to remind you that she's not like other moms, she's a cool mom, a la Amy Poehler's character from Mean Girls. Either the Son is a creature, or he's not. If he is, then have the courage to just say so without having to pile up a bunch of qualifiers to take away the sting. And if he's not a creature, then stop being heretics. Reason number two. Wisely assuming that his opponents are not going to just stop being heretics, Athanasius then poses a simple dilemma. The sun makes everything that is. That's straight out of John chapter 1. Now, if the sun is a creature who is made and the Son makes every creature, then does the Son create himself? Well, that's contradictory. So clearly, the Son is not a creature in that sense. Now, Athanasius knows that his opponents will then say he is presenting them with a false choice. They will say that the Word has power from the Father to create that is on loan to him. That's the Spider-Man or the Batman model of divinity. But Athanasius also thinks this is unsatisfactory. For starters, God doesn't need to loan out power at all. God could have just created the world without the need for the word as a gopher. Furthermore, things that have come into being from nothing can't create other beings. Humans can't create out of nothing. We have to have some kind of pre-existing matter to work with or rearrange. The same is true of the angels, and the same would be true of the word if he were indeed from nothing which of course means that he is not from nothing and the Arians are wrong. But Athanasius isn't done explaining why they are wrong, and it's really going to bother him if he can't finish, so we're off to reason number three. This is where we start to really get into Athanasius's biblical interpretation. He points out that if the Son were among the creatures, we would expect the Bible to compare him to the creatures. In other words, if the Son was just a bit higher up on the totem pole than the archangels, we would expect the Bible to call him greater than the archangels. Or he might be called brighter than the sun and moon, or greater than the heavens, etc. But this is not what the Bible says. 
Instead, the word is compared to the father as his son. This indicates that his level of being is on par with the father, not creation. Moreover, Athanasius points out that in the Bible, creatures tend to be really, really careful not to let other creatures worship them. That's why angels are always showing up and calming people down and telling them to get off the floor and not to worship them because they're angels. They're just messengers. They're not God. If Jesus was a creature, then he wouldn't be worthy of worship and he would tell people not to worship him. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he accepts worship. That, Athanasius thinks, is yet another clue as to his divinity. Now, Arius would probably not agree with Athanasius's characterization of the problem. You see, most of the Eusebii and friends took it for granted that divinity admitted of degrees. So, for Arius, the Son was definitely and truly divine. He was just less divine than the Father. That's why Arius can say things like, Mighty God though he be, the Son sings the praises of the Highest One with only partial adequacy, as you may remember from the Thalia. So for Arius, Athanasius is leaving out an important option, namely that the Word of God is a God worthy of worship just on a lower level than the Father. Athanasius would probably reply that this idea is just bunk. For him, the dividing line is between what is created and what is not. Either the Son is of the Father's essence and is begotten, not made, or he isn't and is created. In Athanasius' conceptual system, there just isn't any room for other gods that don't share the Father's essence. The triumph of Athanasius' worldview and the eclipse of Arius's is one of the unsung but terribly important stories of the 4th century. But Athanasius doesn't yet know that he is one, so he keeps on orating. And off we go into reason number four. Reason number four gets at the difference in worldviews between Athanasius and Arius. Athanasius takes apart the Eusebian position that the Son was created as a mediator because creation couldn't bear the Father's direct touch. He argues that if the Son is a creature, well then he's part of creation, and so also could not bear the Father's touch like the rest of creation, which means this whole scheme gets us exactly nowhere. He makes several other sub-arguments here too, but they are very long, and this list of reasons is already getting lengthy, so I'm just going to skip them. After that healthy dose of kvetching, we get to reason number five. Athanasius points out that whatever God creates is substantial. What human beings create is insubstantial, so when I speak a word, assuming I don't have a podcast mic to record it into, it goes out and vibrates and then dies. That is because I am a man, and I have my substance from nothing, and so what I speak is ultimately nothing substantial, as some of my parishioners would agree, but what God makes is substantial, and thus the word that proceeds from God is not mere effervescence, but is also divinity. Reason number six is just a repetition of what he said earlier, that it's silly to suppose that the Father has a wisdom or power separate from the Son when the rest of the Bible never ever talks about it. The tired reader is likely to get mad at Athanasius for repeating himself when we are already on reason number six. Remember that these are the orations against the Arians and were meant to be read aloud. When you're reading things to people, sometimes you have to remind them of what you have said before. 
And now that I have followed Athanasius in doing that, we are moving on to reason number seven, when he finally sits down to actually examine the verse from Proverbs in detail that he started railing about six reasons ago. Athanasius points out that we need to be attentive to literary genre. The book of Proverbs is composed of, well, Proverbs. Now, Proverbs are not meant to be interpreted literally. They're often quite figurative in nature. So just because the proverb says God created wisdom, that doesn't mean wisdom is a creature just like all the rest. Athanasius is quick to point out that there are other biblical passages where the word create doesn't literally mean create. The most famous such passage is Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, of course, the psalmist is not literally asking God to make him a second heart. He doesn't want to become a time lord. The psalmist wants God to cleanse the heart he has already got. Just so, Athanasius says, with this creation. If God had meant us to think that the sun was a creation, then the Bible would call the sun just that. But it doesn't, and so the Arians have a bad interpretation of this verse. Athanasius all but calls his enemies out behind the bleachers for a standoff when he says, and I quote, If you find anywhere in divine scripture the Lord called creature, produce it and fight. But if it is nowhere written that he is a creature, only he himself says about himself in the Proverbs, the Lord created me, then shame on you. End quote. If there is anything that is created in this, Athanasius says, it is Christ's human nature, which is indeed part of the created order. That is a creature, full stop. But it's definitely not the divine son. Interestingly enough, Athanasius appears to have picked up this particular reason from none other than the eternally unpopular Marcellus of Ancyra, who had also made his way to Rome after his deposition and was becoming buddy-buddy with Athanasius. Marcellus and Athanasius's unlikely friendship will be detaining us more in future episodes, but just for now, know there's some cross-pollination going on. Reason number eight is not a particularly strong argument, but I'll give it here for completeness. Athanasius points out that in the Bible, God is described as making all members of a species at once, not one by one. So in Genesis chapter one, God makes all the birds at once, all the dogs at once, all the angels at once. So if the son was one of these creatures, then the Bible should have mentioned him along with the other members of his species. This is not a particularly great argument. All any of the CBI or their friends would have to do is just say that the sun is one of a kind, and all of a sudden they're out of the bind. Alas, when you're giving ten reasons your opponents are wrong, it's really hard for all of them to be winners. Which is why it's a good thing that Athanasius moves on to reason number nine, when we return to Proverbs chapter eight. Athanasius points out that wisdom is created in his translation, for the beginning of God's works. That's rather different from the translation I gave above, which says wisdom was created at the beginning of God's works. Athanasius gets a lot out of the ambiguity and prepositions here, because no other creature is ever said to be for God's works in the way that wisdom is. In other words, Athanasius says, this passage is not about the word being created at the beginning of time. It is about the creation of the human body the word will inhabit in the incarnation in order to save God's creatures. Put another way, 
Athanasius thinks we should read this passage not as saying the word was created, but that the word was created as the means of salvation at the beginning of time. Now, Athanasius thinks he has explained Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22 pretty well here with these nine reasons. But, since the heretics want to yell about Proverbs chapter 8, verse 23 as well, he figures he'll use that as context to give us a reason number 10. In Proverbs chapter 8, verse 23, wisdom says, Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. Athanasius uses the same logic as above to say that being set up is not the same as being created. In fact, this passage is meant to show us that God planned to redeem all things in Christ, and so the word was set up for us before the world was even made. In other words, God has a plan for all things and had that plan before the whole creation got rolling. Very comforting words, and not in the least bit heretical. No siree. Ooh, well, so much for Athanasius's biblical exegesis and polemic. As you can see, much of the orations are profoundly detail-oriented. Athanasius wants to go verse by verse through the Bible, explaining why his approach is right and his opponent's is wrong. There is a lot to be said for the exactitude of such an approach, but it can make it awfully hard to see the forest for the trees. What, at the end of the day, is Athanasius trying to say about God? We've seen a couple of big ideas already running throughout the text. The Son is the perfect image of the Father, the similar ways the Bible describes the Son and Father, and the inability of a purely created being to communicate God to us. There's one other idea that sums up the whole theology being offered, and it is simply this, that the Son is proper to the Father. Now, when Athanasius says this, he does not mean that the Son always wears a top hat in heaven, or only speaks in these and thous. The Greek word being translated as proper is idios, and it's related to our English word idiom, a person's idiom is their characteristic mode of expression. So if someone makes jokes all the time, or constantly inverts their sentence structure like Yoda, or always leaves an ominous pause at the end of their sentence, then we would say that that's part of their idiom. What Athanasius is essentially saying is that the Son is part of the Father's idiom an inseparable component or aspect of the Father's self-communication from the world, and hence of the very same stuff as the Father, his own hypostasis of the same usia. One of the reasons Athanasius is so worried about the Arian approach is that he thinks that by separating the Son from the Father so much, they wind up unable to explain how the Father communicates or saves creation at all. But you can also see why Athanasius' opponents might have felt he needed to be stopped. Because after all, an idiom is not on the same order of being as a person. One could even think of it as a mode or aspect of a person. And we all know how the 4th century feels about modalism. Athanasius' opponents probably saw themselves as trying to elucidate the distinct differences between the three persons, differences that were important for keeping their dignity, differences they thought Athanasius was eliding and erasing. 
and his newfound friendship with Marcellus of Ancyra sure didn't make them sleep any easier at night. But both of these groups would soon find themselves making their cases to new audiences. For as the orations flew back and forth, times were changing in the Empire, and new rulers brought their own very different perspectives to the controversy. It's time to return to that larger story, as all parties continue to argue and struggle and trudge with increasing trepidation on the road forward, or perhaps backward, to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Alter Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.